Okay, so I'm Nick Bircher and this is the Nordic Future Makers podcast. Today's Nordic Future Maker is Solberg Anadsson from Iceland. He was one of the founders of Takumi, the influencer software and management company. He was a product owner at a multi-million dollar app business and recently he's also founded a company called Planeta. So, Solberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So, so you're based in Iceland. Yeah, I'm based in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. And my my software company that I'm running now is Planetor. Currently, it has sort of local ambitions, uh, whereas Takumi was more of an international play. But mixed with that, I'm also doing consulting, mostly for public authorities. Okay. Cool. So let's go back in time a little bit. So so should we start off with QuizUp, which was actually a, a quiz app. In a really short space of time, QuizUp became something from, from a mobile app funded from Iceland to a kind of global success with TV shows chasing it and all, all sorts of things. So what was QuizUp all about? Yeah, I, uh, QuizUp was a mobile gaming company that matches people together based on their interest and they can play a quiz game in real time. And that was a company that, that was funded here in Iceland. So I got involved in, in, in QuizUp in the very early days when they had uh, just raised their first round of financing for the quiz game. It's a mobile gaming app. I had never been involved in, in, in mobile gaming or, or the mobile app industry before, but I was working in an ad agency uh, in the same building as the Plain Vanilla team. So, so the company is called Plain Vanilla and the game is called QuizUp. They they, there's some, some people there knew me and they knew that I had some experience with Python code. And they asked me to come in to just a, a quick meeting to review kind of the ideas of the server architecture. And in that meeting, I realized that this was an extremely exciting, potentially software project. And one thing led to another and then I ended up joining as the seventh or eighth employee, I think, of the company. And then they ended up going to Silicon Valley and raising money from Sequoia Capital, which for a company from Iceland based in Reykjavik with software with all their staff in Reykjavik, raising a big round from the well, probably the most respected VC fund in the world. That was a huge deal at the time. And we ended up hiring, I would think, probably a big portion of the, of the talent pool here in Iceland. And it became kind of the go-to place to... <laughs> you know, the hip and cool place to work. And it was an amazing time. You know, I, I got to know a lot of amazing talent there. and But it kind of ended as quickly as it began. The company had huge ambitions to become potentially the next big social platform. So the idea at the time was to see if we could create a game, mobile game that matched people based on their interests. But then we would kind of supplement the experience with a lot of social things like chat and people would maybe be able to get to know each other because on Facebook people already they just add people that they know but we were kind of experimenting with could we have a flip side of that the other big social platform where people got to know each other I think we had some success in that regard but it didn't end up being the social platform you know it had had kind of the same churn dynamics as other games where people get very excited and they play intensely but then they get bored of the game quickly so we were trying to break out of those churn dynamics that mobile games have uh, and we didn't have another game in the pipeline we were focusing on this one big game so 
I decided that it was time to move on to my own venture. And that became Takumi. So Takumi is the the big influencer marketing and influencer management company. So so you, you founded that right right from the beginning. So can you talk us through your Takumi story? So the idea of Takumi, I was just using Instagram a lot, as many people did and still do. And I had this, this was kind of before uh, influencers became such a big buzzword and it became sort of an industry of its own. At that point in time, we had more of the big celebrity sponsorship deals, but we didn't have this kind of local micro-influencer play. So my insight at that time was that smaller influencers with a smaller following that are closer to their audience, uh, living in the same cities and places and and doing things that that people can relate to, creating uh, a platform to, to give advertisers access to those influencers might be an interesting play. So I was also keen to see if the, we could build out a marketplace that was to some extent automated. So a single campaign could activate lots of different influencers and, th- and influencers could be given a lot of creative freedom. So those are the kind of ideas that we, that we went out with to start to see if they could work. Actually, the, the, sto- the, the kind of genesis story of Takumi is that I reached out to, to my friend in London who was living in London when I lived in London. And I actually, I actually brainstormed just five or six startup ideas and, and, and asked him, do you think any of these, these ideas are good? And Takumi was one of those ideas using Instagram, using the smaller creators on Instagram as an advertising platform. And he was handling marketing for the company that he was working for at the time. And he said, okay, this is a pretty interesting idea. Why don't we work with this? So, so that's an interesting approach to startups is to send your friends a list of ideas and let them pick and then start the company from there. So you, you started out with, with the idea of you'll build it as a software and a marketplace. So it was software first, really. Exactly. So most influencer companies now are built around the talent. And then they're primarily built around a roster of talent that signs on with exclusive contracts. And then secondarily, I would say that influencer companies are built out around client relationships. We came at it from kind of a software platform perspective, and we wanted to see how we could maybe perhaps create an app for the influencers and the influencers could kind of self-service into that marketplace. At the beginning, we were a little bit naive about how the agency world worked, which is very much built around creativity and the client relationships. But we were focusing on those small influencers that had never done any sponsored work before. We wanted to activate kind of the long tail of creative talent on Instagram. And I think to a large extent, we kind of succeeded. And as far as I know, we came up with the term micro-influencers, which then became sort of a buzzword in the um, influencer marketing world. See. You started off with with one office and a software platform, and then it scaled out so into different countries, different places. Yeah, exactly. So I was a resident in, in in Iceland at the time, but we started the company in London, and we raised capital in London. And the intention was always to kind of in the beginning we wanted to have the software product development in Iceland, where I had a good network of good software and product talent that I knew. And then we had we set up a sales office in London. So I don't know if you if you know this, but the Icelandic krona it kind of swings up and down. And at the time, 
kind of the cost of setting up that product development office in Iceland was quite low. Also, at the time, we had the currency restrictions, and I could kind of get into that, the problems of, of having an Icelandic company with, uh, with currency restrictions. But this kind of worked out for a couple of years, and eventually we also set up a sales office in Berlin and then New York as well. Um, and those offices are still operational, but we ended up at some point uh, moving our product development to Berlin. And then today we have more or less a remote. All the product development happens at various offices just remotely, as many companies still do today. So I think that's interesting. You you start a company, but you effectively have two different companies at the same time. You have the back office in one country and then the, the sales office in, in London. I guess you were just going backwards and forwards between the two, two all the time. Yeah, exactly. There were three founders to Takumi. Mats Tixilius was always based in London. Gummi Eckertson is the other co-founder. Gummi and I, we are both based in Iceland and we have families here. So that's why we're, we've been based in Iceland uh, throughout this whole thing. Yeah, me and Gummi were doing uh, lots of trips back and forth between London and Iceland. Uh, so that was okay, but eventually, you know, living in hotels and stuff like that, that kind of played into why I took uh, a step out uh, out of the Takumi venture eventually. But you you scaled very quickly then with Takumi. So you took funding very early, and then you just kind of went for went for it in terms of building it out quickly. Yeah, that's right. We. Um, Funding environment in London, uh, I got to know that a little bit through Takumi, obviously, but um, there's a lot of family offices. Um, there are There's a really supportive tax structure uh, around angel investments in London. And our approach to, to funding was to go and ag- aggregate and to pitch a lot instead of going to one big fund. Uh, we ended up having quite a lot of success actually funding via these um, family offices and angels. Uh, and the and the tax incentives in London really helped us out. And I've actually been in Iceland um, trying to explain to to people that the tax structure in London might be a beneficial thing to implement in Iceland. But yeah, so that was that was something that I didn't know when I started Takumi, and um, it's an interesting thing in London. So that's the funding side of things, but but obviously. You're dealing with lots and lots of people and people on Instagram and influencers and things like that. So, so was it hard to kind of get people to understand what you were trying to do and get the influencers to understand things and to try and explain it? How, how did you kind of set it all up and set the story up? Um, well, one of the things I learned was that, as I said earlier, we, we, had, we had this idea of making an automated platform. Marketplaces vary quite differently in terms of how automated they are. So you have to look at the supply side and the demand side. On the demand side, you have the agencies that are that are buying campaigns and you have the brands that are buying directly. But on the supply side and influencer marketing, you have those that creative talent. And we were keen to work with the smaller influencers that in many cases are are, are completely inexperienced with doing branded work. So we were using our app to send out the instructions for the campaign. So we were asking people to, hey, we, we want you to promote this product. Here are the guidelines for how to promote this product. And within those instructions, people could kind of detect the level of creative freedom that they as an influencer and, and as a creator on Instagram had. 
because you don't have those people in a room and you're not able to brief them directly, you're not able to have that one-on-one conversation with them. You're not able to send a director on site, like in like in like in big projects. We had to rely on people to understand those understand those instructions. What often ended up happening is that people would kind of misinterpret directions or things like that. So we we actually accrued a lot of experience about how to how to work with influencers at scale. And I think a lot, a lot of our clients kind of that was a benefit for a lot of our clients. But that was tricky, and uh, and we ended up having to do a lot of work on the supply side, it's more work than we I think we we had in mind when we set this up. So Takumi today does a lot of work on those campaigns, and the influencer marketing does not work like I like I naively thought in the beginning that you could just open up an app, send out instructions, get a lot of great creative creativity sent, and people could just post those things. In the early days, we actually literally allowed people just to post without us even looking at those creatives. We quickly realized that we actually have to vet the creative and and even the client, of course, because of legal concerns and brand control and brand safety. They want to be able to review those creative materials and have a say in whether that creative is, in their mind, good or not. But I think this experiment and and giving influencers a lot of creativity kind of set an interesting tone for the direction of the company where we were working with a client to encourage them to give influencers as much trust, um, the more trust, the better. And what ended up happening there is that we did actually end up uh, recruiting lots of great influencers that can be trusted. And today, Takumi benefits a lot from that because we have a roster of amazing talent that's long tail. So that means we have a lot of great micro-influencers on the platform today. So it's interesting to see how DNA and initial ideas of a company are not necessarily exactly what ends up working out, but it does set a tone and does kind of insert that DNA that makes the company special at the end of the day. Okay, so you thought you were initially setting up just a marketplace to kind of be a matchmaker between... Um, brands and influencers, but but you ended up having to train, having to train people in how to do it. And I would say actually educating the clients and the brands and agencies as well about that you do have to trust influencers quite a lot, and you can't just use your own brand guidelines when working with influencers. You kind of have to find that middle road where the influencer is speaking to their audience on their terms, in their style, and with their aesthetic. And that's actually ends up being the best creative for that feed because those, because that audience has opted into following that influencer because of their aesthetic. Today, this is kind of something that brands understand a lot better, but we were doing a lot of work in this industry trying to educate brands about this, I think, in the early, early days. Okay, so you, you've got everything from raising the awareness of, of the channel as a way of you know, advertising and marketing but then you've also got everything to do with training brands and how to brief people. And, and then you've got things in training influences in, in how to work and how to behave. Exactly. And so that kind of eats into the automation aspect, but that's actually something that had to happen for us to build a product that delivers consistently great campaigns. And that was okay. But I guess over time, people then start to understand a bit more and it becomes easier and it becomes easier to scale. Being an early mover in an industry, I think maybe this is a typical story. 
where you end up spending a lot of effort educating and, and, and kind of explaining how things could potentially work. And then you reap the benefits from that later when the industry has kind of caught on to smaller influencers and giving them creativity, creative freedom and things like that. So you set this thing up and, and what was the moment where you thought, actually, that this is going to work, this is a good thing? I think when you see a campaign that activates, that has that idea of activating lots of small influencers and giving them a lot of creative freedom, you don't know what creative to expect. And when brands are willing to work in that way, we have an admin interface where you just scroll down and you see all the images that are pending approval. And then there's a lot of magic in just scrolling through that and seeing the diversity of people that have participated in that campaign and done their interpretation of the instructions. I think that's the sweet spot. That's the magic moment in influencer marketing when you see the breadth of creativity through the individuals. And that's that's definitely one of the goals of Takumi. And I think that should be one of the goals in influencer marketing in general is to use the advantage of the influencer channel to get extreme diversity. Uh, and that's, I think, when you get cre- extreme creativity... Uh, I think the magic moment for brands is actually learning from that and seeing if that could kind of filter back into into their brand and see if that could have an impact on the way they think about their product, is to see that product being used in different ways. What you did with Takumi was kind of scaling it quite quickly and building it out mm-hmm. and and kind of finding a whole new area. And that's kind of the red thread that's been running through through everything you've been doing. So at the moment, you're... Your latest venture is called Planetor. So that's all about the built environment and it's kind of about how you access info on planning and construction in Iceland and, and a whole new new area that seems to be appearing. So, yeah, Planetor, it's definitely not related to influencer marketing. In many ways, it's quite the opposite. I've been kind of watching this movement called no code and kind of the bootstrap movement. There are, there are a lot of software people that are experimenting with building companies without investor money. And I think there's a lot of interesting ideas there. And uh, so a friend of mine during like kind of the peak of the first COVID wave uh, where people were just staying at home and, and um, a friend of mine reached out to me who is a planner. He's also a carpenter, just a childhood friend of mine. And he was doing consulting related to planning. And he sent me a link to the to the meeting notes of the Reykjavik local building authority. And he was showing me that, hey, this, this is the way that Reykjavik are publishing their meeting notes and their building permits. And curiously, it's also the planning world is something that I had been getting into slightly more because I got interested in micromobility, uh, the idea of using small electric motors to, to power um, urban transport. From that, I got interested in city planning and and, uh, and the built world. So this friend of mine was reaching out to me and showing me, hey, this is how planning notes are published. And it's built on Lotus Notes, which is an ancient, ancient, yeah. <laughs> and these local authorities, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of cash strapped for big projects. And the web page is just raw HTML. There's no CSS. But he was also at the same time showing me how interesting the information in there is. And what's interesting about building permits is that this is the first public place where you can you can detect interest in new constructions. And constructions have a huge relationship with the daily life of people, the financial world, 
And there's a lot of macro data that we could potentially derive if we started to scrape this information from the local authorities around Iceland. Uh, and we started to kind of plot uh, the idea of a startup where we could service this planning sector in Iceland a lot better. We spoke with a lot of people kind of in, in our network, uh, a person at a local bank. We met with the met with the people that lend out money to construction projects there. And they were telling us this would be a great idea. What we need is a map of the ongoing construction projects, and we'd love to know at what stage they are. So I think this kind of planning inside the pipeline visibility of construction is a lot better in many other countries. But in Iceland, uh, we still don't have an aggregate view of these things. So what started out as as kind of a, a simple web scraper, kind of the snowball started to roll and get bigger and bigger. And today we have kind of within the context of Iceland, which is a tiny, tiny country, uh, we're still just keeping it a two-man team. We're not going to raise any funds. So it's an experiment in, in doing software development in Iceland. It's a small economy, but with a small team, we're, we're, we're going to see how far we can take this thing. Which is fascinating, just the t- taking a really old problem and then just trying to put layers of, of data and digital and things like that over the top of it. Exactly. And what we're trying to do there is try to weave the data together. So if you look at the building permit notes, um, you can see, okay, here's someone applying to raise a roof in their house. Okay, that's a small, tiny thing, but you get the address. And because you get the address, you can you can look up the coordinates and then you can put a map in there. And already you start to have a better presentation, at least, of that meeting note. But what you can also do is to look at bigger projects, right, that have potentially a lot more funding and a lot more square meters, and that's useful to a totally different uh, sector. So there's one final question that I kind of ask everyone, which is just a simple open-ended question. And it's, what are you curious about now? I'm, I, I guess I could segment my, my current kind of research and reading interest into, into economics um, I'm, I'm, and, and then planning, you know, because of planetary and micromobility. Uh, which I'm which I'm heavily into now. Um, the economic interest is 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 basically MMT. Um, it stands for for modern monetary theory. Um, I actually went to university um, for a year and then dropped out of economics. And today there's a huge you know kind of rejuvenation of economic thinking and economic theory around modern monetary theory. I use Twitter a lot for this. I just I kind of use that as a trail of breadcrumbs, you know, fo- follow people that are saying interesting things and then unfollow, make sure to unfollow people too so that you're kind of pruning your feed of ideas. And then I've been kind of a little bit just naively courageous to interact with, with people that I think are saying interesting things. And Twitter is an amazing platform for that. It, it keeps surprising me how open people are to, to conversations, even with people that aren't established in that particular field, people that are just curious about something. And, and I would say the same for micromobility, just following these kind of public intellectuals, I guess. Yeah, it's an interesting way to learn, I would say. Again, it's that trail, you were talking about a trail of breadcrumbs, but it's the idea of one thing then leads to another thing. And then before you know it, there are other things happening. So I think that's a really cool way of approaching approaching the world and approaching things. Cool. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for for answering all my questions and telling me a bit more about what you've been up to. 
I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Perfect. For everyone else, I think Solberg is another great example of a Nordic future maker, someone who's constantly pushing the boundaries of digital and and coding and looking at different ways of doing things. So so it's been fascinating to hear all the different things from from quiz apps to planning application tools to, to kind of influencer marketing as well. So thank you very much for your time. 